0: Hello and welcome to The Crumb, a podcast from Bake From Scratch Magazine. We're here to talk baking in all forms, the people, the culture, and the baked goods that make us run to preheat our oven. Hello and welcome to The Crumb. I'm Kyle Grace Mills, the Managing Editor at Bake From Scratch Magazine. And I'm
1: Tricia Manzanero-Studeman, the Baking and Pastry Editor.
0: And that's right. Again, we have Trisha, and we're lucky to have her back. And it's a special episode where Trisha's talents is are uniquely needed. We're talking holiday hotline problems, issues, things that, you know, go wrong in the kitchen. She has your solutions, every kind that you can imagine. And before we get into that, it is coming the entirety of 2021, believe it or not, even though we're still processing 2020 is coming to an end. And I thought it'd be kind of fun to ask somebody who has developed a lot of our recipes and worked on a lot of our recipes what her favorite recipe uh, from the year 2021 for Bake from Scratch or story was.
1: One of my favorites was actually the uh, orange story we did for September, October. I love all things pumpkin and squash and all those fall flavors with the warm spices. So it was really some of my top things that I love to bake with all in one story.
0: Yeah, the um, Color Me Orange was that one. Mm -hmm. I had to write a gourd sidebar on that one, (laughs) uh, good gourds. Um, Which I didn't get to talk about sweet potato because it is not a gourd. Um, It is a tuber, but that's fine. Um, That's something you guys definitely wanted to know on a baking podcast. What's the difference between a gourd and a goober? A gourd and a tuber. A goober's a peanut. I can keep going, guys. I can just keep telling everybody about this. (laughs) And word puns for days. Honestly, that is your second superpower. It's no wonder that, you know, I write so much content for the magazine. I'm just so well informed. Um, but I don't know, speaking for, for my personal experience. I love the custard powder story we did. So, Bird's Custard Powder in particular, but there are other custard powders out there, but it's a Canadian-specific, in my mind, Canadian-specific ingredient. Um, everything's Canadian-centric um, because my grandmother made it seem so. She said that, you know, she she came from a very great country, um, Canada, and she actually didn't become an American citizen until like... 30 or 40 years after marrying my grandfather. uh, And that was mostly about inheritance. But like, (laughs) she just she was, she was so um, in love with Canada. So my experience with custard powder is tied to her and a lot of warm feelings about, you know, that Canadian pride that she had. And I made those custard cream cookies in it which were just so delicious. And then the one thing I haven't made, which is kind of on my also on my holiday um, baking bucket list, is the Nanaimo layer cake we have mm-hmm. in it, which is like a vertical layer cake, kind of has the bouche de Noel-like feel to it. I mean, it is it is a gorgeous cake. And the Nanaimo bars, like if you don't know, it's coconut, it's chocolate, it's cookie. It has um, some almonds, some, you know, like sometimes it's almonds, sometimes it's other nuts. But I mean, it's just so good and then it has this gorgeous custard cream buttercream which come on can't get any better than that
1: basically give me nanaimo bars in any any iteration and i will gladly eat
0: it i know you like the eggnog nanaimo bars which was uh, my retro redo back Mm -hmm. in the day for my again my grandmother um she would she was not a baker she was a cocktail drinker um and she would rather waste the calories on a cocktail for sure so you know, I, I get that. So what we did was we added an alcoholic beverage to the Nanaimo bars, um, which I think she would have really appreciated. Mm-hmm. in her honor. All right. So we've kind of done a little yearly recap. Let's jump into this this big old holiday hotline theme. So first things first, when you're getting into the kitchen and you've got your recipe, A lot of bakers, because they know when the family descends and all these other things happen, they're not going to have time to, like, be in the kitchen making things at the last minute. What are some of your top make-ahead tips for cookies and cakes? I think those are the most common things people make over the holidays.
1: Absolutely. So as a pastry chef, as a baker, um, you see them put out tons and tons of baked goods um, every single year, every single day. And really that's about prior planning and really getting use of your fridge and your freezer as much as possible. So cookie doughs, freeze beautifully actually so you can make it ahead of time go ahead and scoop your dough or roll and cut them and freeze them on baking sheets close together but not touching and then once they're frozen solid you can throw them into an airtight container um, and then freeze them until you're ready to go that way you can either pull them out tray them up and um, let them thaw in your refrigerator or while um, your oven is preheating and then bake them off that way you're not scrambling when people are about to come to your house Um, cooking Uh, cakes actually do really well too so when you bake them you can cool them completely uh, wrap them in a couple layers of plastic wrap and then maybe one or two layers of foil and those can also be frozen until solid those can hang out and then you can thaw them and then build your cake later
0: and Trisha tell the um, listener who is definitely not gonna be patient enough and put the hot cake into the freezer tell them what will happen do not do it. <laughs> be
1: patient. I know it's so, so hard. Um, but if you think about that heat, um, when you put that plastic wrap right over it, it is just going to steam. It's going to be soggy. It's going to be sadness. Um, so wait for your cake to completely cool before you wrap it up and freeze it.
0: Yes. I mean, imagine Gordon Ramsay screaming at you, you know, and say, you know, talking about food safety. You cannot put hot things next to cold things. You can also, that's just a food safety 101 thing. Um, but I am talk- I wanted to hear this because it was my dream for Trisha to yell at me and not know she was yelling at me. Because I have definitely put a hot cake layer into my freezer no, and fridge. No, no,
1: Congress. You guys
0: can't see the hand gestures, but they're very <laughs> angry. Um, not those kinds of hand gestures, excuse me. Uh, but she- it is one of those things like, I learned it. Don't make my mistakes, please. All right, going from after make a head. The other thing I was kind of ta- I was kind of thinking about was a lot of people are worried about then shipping these baked goods. I am a shipper, a big big baked good shipper. I've been doing it for years, but I'd love to hear some of your tips and tricks because you also her you know how the baked good is. My, your professional thing is to know how the baked good is being packed up and needs to be prepared and what can be shipped.
1: mm mm-hmm. Mhm. It's definitely a lot of prior planning um you want to pick the baked goods that will hold up the best so you're thinking sturdy maybe bars or brownies um say or biscotti or maybe like those crisp chewy cookies that aren't just gonna break if you look at them the wrong way um also think about how you're packaging things so you want to keep your soft cookies away from your crisp cookies because they actually can kind of affect each other's texture if they're put into the same package or bag. And also make sure that you separate um, strongly flavored items. So I like to pack the same type of cookie or the same type of treat together. That way your mint cookie isn't bleeding into your peanut butter cookie because if you put them all in one bag, they can share flavors and that's not always a great thing.
0: Yeah, I was blown away when I saw one time like the the little study where it, you put a cookie that was super soft and a cookie that was super um, crispy and like how they leached the moisture from each other and the crisp cookie became really soft and gummy. Like the same way that you can put a bread slice in with your brown sugar and that helps it keep it moist. It just sucks the moisture. That hy- hyperscopic or hydroscopic?
1: Hydroscopic, I'm pretty hy- sure.
0: Hydroscopic. Um, we're scientists. You know, <laughs> like that it wants moisture. It pulls it out of the air. So definitely take, especially if you if texture's a big deal with whoever you're sending it to. Um, yeah, keep those molasses snaps away from, you know, the sugar cookies.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then what do you suggest? I mean, just for good looks, because we've had to stage some things for shoots before sure. and make it look good. Because mine's always been super pared down. I wrapped this in saran wrap, then I wrapped it in 10 foil and now here you go. Mm-hmm. Um, but how do we not do the CalGrace Grace way of wrapping things?
1: I love using the uh, cellophane bags, like the cookie bags to um, tie up my cookies all batched together um, and stacked nicely. Do keep them in maybe smaller stacks rather than just throwing them all in one big bag. Um, you definitely can throw some cute bows on there, um, but really make sure that your packaging inside your your box or your tin um, keeps everything from moving around. So that doesn't necessarily have to just be, you know, plastic bags or a newspaper. You can get really fun um like festive paper or tissue paper that can also get packed in there but also
0: look really fun at the same time. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, you the most important thing is that it arrives there in great condition and still tastes good. But if you can have those little touches, like the, the tin, buying a, you know, cute little tin from like Williams-Sonoma or someplace like that, that added thing, that's like an extra gift too because that person can then use it and hopefully then mail you cookies the next year in that tin and it just goes back and forth. It's a
1: great barter system, It's a good bartering
0: system, I think so.
1: Definitely, if you're going to use those um, kind of paper takeout boxes though, they can be really cute, but make sure you maybe wrap it a couple times in plastic wrap before you put it in your shipping box just because it's not airtight. And really, you want to keep your cookies and your treats in an airtight container so they stay nice and fresh for the person who's receiving them
0: yes remember that you're not packaging up an animal not that you should anyways but it does not need air to breathe it really doesn't need any air at all and needs to be suffocated and kept very very good (laughs) i took that to a dark place i apologize (laughs) back to the holidays back to the holidays my favorite season so um okay next big question besides moving on from the shipping Uh, I think that one of the number one issues that bakers run into, especially if they're bread bakers, in this cold season is proofing. We've all been there. It is like 60 degrees um, in your house generously with your thermostat. There's no way you're going to get your bread dough to rise. And then you have to, you can, some people don't have a proof function on their oven. And even if they do have a proof function on the oven, they need to preheat their oven um, to get up to that high temperature to bake the bread. So sometimes there's no time to proof it. What do you do in these circumstances? What are like some of your top tips for proofing in that cold kitchen?
1: Absolutely, unless you're in Alabama, you know, and then it's still warm. <laughs> and then in the middle it's of raining.
0: It's fine. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, you have a couple options. Um, one we do in the test kitchen often is we take like a large um, saucepan that you can put a wire rack on top of, and you'll bring your water up to a simmer, and it's just kind of steamy, and then you can balance your your bread um, bowl over the top, and then just kind of let it sit over that steamy environment until it's nice and proofed. Um, another option is your Microwave can become um, an instant proof box, essentially. So you can put some water uh, in a glass measuring cup, heat that up until it's nice and hot and steamy, and then stick it in the corner. Then your bread dough can come in in its little bowl, you can shut the door, and then that will be a beautiful proofing environment for your bread. Keep in mind, though, the hotter it is in that space, the, the faster your bread will proof. So keep an eye on it
0: yeah and I have to say i I'm a person who has microwaved like water in the uh, microwave and microwaved it in the microwave. I know you were dying to know how I microwaved it, but um that's usually for tea, which a lot of British people are smashing their their tea right now, just hearing me say that and it really does like create like this little sauna inside of it and I think it's we we don't talk about it a lot when we say proofing, but that moist part of it too, like getting that kind of extra uh, water into the environment helps that from getting, like, a tough skin on the outside. You know, you don't have to tightly cover it like you would. I think people often when they just do proofing, they leave it out in the air and it gets that kind of tough outer skin on their bread. And that also kind of helps you avoid that, the little moistness.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. We get a little bit MacGyver-like in the kitchen, right? But there's no way your bread will not proof. There are so many options.
0: Yeah, I've done the dry approach where, like, I had the, you know, like uh, the heating pad, mm-hmm. and then the space heater, and but I didn't have the moisture in it. And frankly, once I used that for one of our recipes, changed my whole pr- perspective. I, I always use like that simmering water aspect now. Mm-hmm. All right, so we got the proofing out of the way. What next would a baker run into? Well, they would run into what we all run into, which is colossal failure. What we feel like as <laughs> colossal failure, it's not. Maybe the cake didn't bake all the way. Maybe the cookies got burned on the bottom. You know, maybe your icing broke and it just won't pipe pretty. There's so many things you can do to salvage this. This does not have to be th- throw it in the bin or trash. It can be kept and, you know, turned into something brand new. What are some of your favorite salvage the cake, salvage the pudding, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> techniques you would have for bakers who do they took their eye off the ball one second and they think that Christmas is ruined. Oh my gosh.
1: Well, of course, the holidays are high stress and you have a ton of people coming over. So of course, that's a time where even the most seasoned of bakers are going to get into these crises that you would never have in a in normal day to day. But let us preface it by saying we have all been there. Even yes. as professionals, <laughs> you are not alone. And a beautiful thing about baker's mistakes, quote unquote, is that our mistakes are delicious. Yes. So, we have the added benefit. Um, There are a few actually. Um, If your cookies get a little bit too brown, say on the edges or a little bit on the bottom, a great trick is to just take a microplane and kind of shave off of those over browned bits um, and until it's just nicely golden brown. Um, And that can help a lot with those cookies. Another thing is you could put potentially make them into sandwich cookies so that little added layer of buttercream you know the-
0: I particularly like that one because like that buttercream will soften the cookie slightly mm-hmm. too if you're not for the crispy cookie if you like crispy cookie you know shaving off that little burnt part will take care of that little bit of flavor and it'll be a perfectly crisp cookie mm-hmm. but when you have that buttercream in there it really does soften up the cookie making it much more you know like to that the level that you were really wanting so love it plus Cookies are better with icing. Always. All right, proceed. Um, And
1: also, it can kind of... Cover any extra toasty flavors too and then you get an extra scoop of buttercream for yourself. Um, I know a lot of people we've seen our pies like particularly pumpkin pie or our cheesecakes crack and it is like heartbreak for a lot of us Um, but do not fret. You can easily just cover those little crevices with whipped cream or like a nice jammy fruit topping and we promise you we will not tell anybody that that little crack ever ever happened. So that's a really easy fix and then once you slice in it's going to be delicious no one ever ever has to know
0: yeah i mean it's important for everybody to remember that what feels like the end of the world to you and looks like the end of the world to you it it the world looks exactly the same Mm -hmm. (laughs) it is perfectly fine with it and it usually does still taste quite good so don't forget to take off like your critical baker's um, glasses when you're you're doing these things
1: for sure and that also goes into say like fallen cakes Um, We've heard a lot of you say that you take your cake out of the oven and it looks great and then it suddenly deflates or maybe you turn it out and it has like a a doughy center. So no need to panic. Um, Often those types of cakes will have like cake beautifully baked around the edges and those are still very much salvageable. So you can take those um, cake bits and either make it into a beautiful trifle or um, crumble them up and maybe make some little cake bonbons which people would love just the same.
0: Right. And that goes for leftover cake too. Like if you've got leftover cake and maybe it's like it's just about to get dry and you don't want to make people keep eating the kind of the same leftovers, you can take that cake and turn it into a trifle and maybe add like an element of whipped cream or some mm-hmm. kind of departure filling that makes it kind of new and exciting. You know, I'm a leftover queen. I'm always thinking about how can I turn this, you know, pot roast into forty five different things. Same thing with cake. You can turn cake into all sorts of delicious things. And not even just like a mistake cake, but Maybe it's just too much cake, which I know doesn't exist, but hypothetically speaking.
1: Oh, yeah. And you can even take some of those cake crumbs and toast them. We love putting them as like this really fun garnish on the outside of cakes. And I've even heard of people putting them in milkshakes or in bread puddings, which I mean, a cake milkshake. Come on.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's what what I want right now. Yeah. Which this isn't really a holiday specific thing. I mean, this is every single day, every single year, bakers want to know what they can substitute. Of course. And uh, there are so many like, specific ones um, for holidays, though, that we can address. One of them is fresh versus frozen cranberries. We get so many questions, vice versa, on all our recipes, like, can I use fresh where this calls for frozen? Can I use frozen where this calls for fresh? And just give our readers, like, a little couple of guidelines so that they know exactly what they should be following, because it's really not that hard to substitute either one, but you just have to follow a few guidelines.
1: Absolutely. So... More often than not, yes, you can substitute one for the other. Definitely go by what your recipe says. If it says fresh or frozen, you are probably just fine. If your recipe calls uh, for fresh cranberries, you might consider um, thawing your cranberries, rinsing them and patting them dry before adding them to your recipe. Uh, Reasoning for that is sometimes the frozen berries um, can have this like liquid or juice with them that might leach into your batter or something like that. So sometimes you do wanna just give them a rinse and a little pat dry before, before throwing them into your batter.
0: I Yes, I love that one just because people don't realize how like much moisture is included when you freeze things. And like the cell walls actually like burst when you freeze a lot of fruit. Mm-hmm. And that's what's releasing a lot of that extra water is that kind of when you freeze it, that process, it kind of explodes mm-hmm. inside. It still can be kind of, you know, it's still together, but it can look a little mushy when you pull it out of the freezer, but don't panic. That's all that's happened is that, yes, it was very stressful being frozen. And, <laughs> and now, you know, it's thawed again, and it's a little worse for wear. But the flavor is still good, especially when it's something that you're going to be baking in the oven a long mm-hmm. time. Like, it's going to look exactly the same as using a fresh one. And just be just as delicious. All right. The next most common substitution we get every time, buttermilk especially because we're based in the south we call for full fat buttermilk all the time which is not as common you know in some areas that don't you know have it as a normal ingredient for biscuits or something like that so we call for you know full fat and most people only have you know low fat or half fat Mm -hmm. no there's never been half fat but there is low fat Mm -hmm. (laughs) buttermilk thank you for supporting me (laughs) well i actually
1: come up from the north so um I never saw whole buttermilk, really, until I moved down here to the south. Fun story. Um, And we did have our bunt retreat up in Minneapolis, where one of our bunt cakes developed with whole buttermilk. There was none to be found. Um, But we did end up using low-fat buttermilk, and it was all fine. So when in doubt, if you need to sub low-fat buttermilk, more often than not, you'll be Pretty okay, um, but there are tons of substitutions you can try. So one of my favorites is uh, full-fat sour cream diluted with a little bit of water or a little bit of milk. So you just want to add enough of that—that's milk or water—to your sour cream until it's more of a buttermilk-like texture. Um, kefir is really great too. It's basically a pourable, also acidic, yogurty sort of substance that you can put in in place of buttermilk as well. Um, Full-fat yogurt with water or milk is also great to sub in for your buttermilk. And there's also powdered buttermilks that you can find in the store if whole-fat buttermilk is not found. So you can um, reconstitute that to the amount of buttermilk that you need, and you can have the buttermilk you have for your recipe, no problem.
0: And I am definitely contemplating using that powdered buttermilk for, like, other silly reasons like i want to put that in a frosting would that mm-hmm. make like a deliciously because i know that we have some buttermilk frostings we've made before and they are to die for a little temperamental though because they can be real loose mm-hmm. but i'm thinking if i use that powder maybe can create the exact same thing I mean, I'm all for experimenting.
1: Your your test kitchen is your kitchen. So basically give it a try.
0: And if it doesn't work out, learn from it and try something else the next day. Well, normally what I do is I sign it to you guys in the test kitchen, and <laughs> then you try it first. And then I know that it's safe for me to get out into the big scary water. Okay. But sure, I'll do it this time. I will go bravely before, <laughs> I believe. before you guys. Uh, all right. One more substitution idea. Uh, I think that The other really common thing, and I think that a lot of people take it for granted, is salted versus unsalted butter. Mm -hmm. And I am not judging. I love salted butter. It is great for your biscuits and things like that. But I think a lot of people don't understand why we're saying don't use salted butter. I think they think we're just saying you need to control the salt, and we're the only people who can tell you how much salt you can have in it. It's a lot more going on than that. So will you please tell our listeners a little bit more about salted versus unsalted, and yes, it should work, but why you still should go with what we call for in the recipe.
1: For sure. Well, you kind of mentioned it there. Um, A lot of the point of using unsalted butter is about control. Um, You want to be able to control the amount of salt and the amount of flavor that are in your recipes because it can impact so much. So for salted butter, yes, it's delicious, especially on biscuits, like you said, and crusty bread. Um, But so for about a half cup, so one stick of salted butter, there's about a quarter teaspoon of salt. So that's table salt, say. Um, And so if you're going to add it to a recipe usually that uses unsalted butter, you're going to want to adjust your salt amounts by that much. So if you're adding a half cup of salted butter, you're going to want to decrease your salt by about a quarter teaspoon if you're talking table salt here. Um, But that will work for cookies, cakes, stuff like that that is uh, much more lenient. But for things, say bread, where salt can really impact the success of of your baked good, um, you, you probably wanna go ahead and follow the recipe, use unsalted rather than salted butter.
0: I mean, especially when you are when the recipe calls for you to have like hot melted butter and milk, and then you proof the yeast in it. If that salted butter, that salt in the butter, could kill your yeast, and you won't even have like rising dough. I think my mom's been doing that <laughs> recently. She's like, I I don't know why my bread's not rising as much, and I'm like, well, you know, I've walked through everything, but it comes down to she always uses salted butter, and I think that's killing her yeast. That might just be it. That and when you're making pastries, um, salted butter, you know, salt makes things melt. You know, that's why you throw salt out onto, you know, snow. It helps make things melt much faster. When it's in your butter and when the whole point of the process like laminating dough is to keep everything as cold as possible, you're shaving down the amount of time you have to work with your dough by that much. So using like an unsalted butter really does help keep things cooler and solid for longer. All right. Next question. We have the biggest substitution question of all time, which is why is it important to use kosher versus, you know, a regular table salt or sea salt? I think that's important for people to know in this baking season.
1: So really one of the most important things about the salt is just to know the salt that you're baking with so some people love to use fine sea salt in their baked goods we use kosher salt and that's great Um, know the the salinity levels of the salt you're using as well as um, weight we love to talk about using weight while baking and the reason for that is it keeps everything consistent so um, the one teaspoon of sea salt Fine sea salt or fine table salt might weigh double the same amount of kosher salt. So, if a recipe calls for a certain gram weight, um, definitely go by that um, if you're going to substitute a different salt. That way, you get more consistent results um, in your final baked goods.
0: Right. And I think people, when you look at kosher, the other big delineator between that and other salt is it's not iodized. Mm -hmm. And We iodized salt back in the day because we weren't getting enough of it in our diet. In our modern diet of today, it's really not as big of a problem getting iodine into our diet. So the reason why we like this kosher salt is that it doesn't have a little bit of that um, iodine taste. That's one of the things, which is very subtle. Some people don't notice it at all, but it has a less chemical taste to it, especially if you're using it in big batches when you're making big loaves of bread or double doses of something. And I think that's another important thing to tell people. Well, thank you everyone again for tuning in for another episode of The Crumb. And thank you especially to our sponsors for this podcast, Kerrygold Butter, Anchor Shrum, Oregon Fruit, and Red Star Yeast. All of these companies are amazing. They help us put on shows like this. And we hope we've answered some really important burning questions you may have had for this holiday baking season. Uh, mostly trisha answering me just extrapolating <laughs> but uh, we hope that you, you've also gotten some inspiration about what you'd want to send along and here at bake from scratch we wish you happy baking and happy holidays if you liked our podcast please rate subscribe and tell a friend about us to keep up with all of our baking endeavors follow our editor-in-chief and co-host brian on instagram at brian hart Hoffman. you can follow bake from scratch on instagram at the bake feed For online recipes and fresh baking content, go to our website, bakefromscratch.com, and sign up for our newsletter, Preheat. Finally, for in real life baking inspiration, grab our magazine on newsstands, or subscribe through our website.